Kia This program is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Wellington Access Radio, make your voice heard. Kia ora, Wellington. You're listening to Wellington Access Radio 783 AM, and this is B-Side Stories, stories of the people who make Wellington tick. I'm your host today. My name's Laura Kewen, and I'm co-hosting with Martin. Hi, Martin. Hello. Uh... Hello, B-Side Stories listeners. It's um, great to be here, and we've got a couple of fantastic guests for you this evening. I hope all is well for everybody out there in uh, beautiful Wellington. I love seeing the sun shining in our wonderful city. Uh, It's another great day. Thanks for the better late than never summer. (laughs) 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 Who who have you got first up for us? Sure, sure. So our first guest tonight, Laura, is uh, my friend, my good friend, Johnny Cabinda Charles. Uh, Johnny is a really interesting gentleman. I, I met him uh, through my work with Kaibosh. He comes in to volunteer. Um, he's the owner of Abracababra here in Manor Street. He, oh, I love it. Yep. He is a... Um, He's a boutique sports manager, so he does one-on-one sports managing for some of New Zealand's leading athletes. Neat. He has also just started his uh, his own coffee brand called Rad, um, and in the past he was a trialist for the Crystal Palace uh, professional football team over in England. He was in the under-20 squad. He played uh, international rugby sevens for Hong Kong. Uh, he uh, is originally from Sierra Leone, where he had to leave when he was nine years old due to the civil war there. And he went back uh, as a young man and built a school there. So just a really interesting uh, gentleman and, and also finds the time to come and volunteer at Kaibosh. So I was um, just really interested to get to know more of his story, really, and, and share his story with our listeners. You know, he's another Wellingtonian that's just doing amazing things in our community. He, he helps these young men and women with their um, careers. And the thing that I really like about him is that he takes such a personal view and overall uh, in the overall well-being of his clients. He's not just all about... You know, you hear a lot about these sports managers which are just out to, to get their client to earn as much money as they sure, can. Yeah. Uh, Johnny seems to have a much more holistic view of the wealth and health of his clients, which is really, uh, it's just really, really interesting to me personally. And yeah. um, I thought he would be somebody that would be make a fantastic interview. Yeah. And he also loves to talk and chat. So hey. uh, he's perfect, really. <laughs> That's and then, yeah, yeah. And then our second guest, um, the wonderful April Fish. Another friend of mine, she, her name is Katie. I'm not sure if it's her name. Uh, she has uh, put together a 10-piece choir to perform at uh, Cuba Dupa on Saturday night. So she's going to uh, give us a little sneak peek to what her choir sounds like. We're going to have a seven or eight piece in here as well as live piano and live stand-up bass. So we're going to close the show with that. Um, so really looking forward to tonight's show and I hope that uh, our listeners get to learn something about um, the people in their city that are making it tick. Yeah. Hey, that is going to be excellent in the second half of the show. Yeah. And in the meantime, we've got Johnny on the line we waiting do. to chat. We do. Hi, Johnny. Hey, guys. How are you? right? Yeah, good. Thanks, buddy. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thanks. Where are you calling from, Johnny? Now, you were supposed to be in the studio with us tonight. <laughs> I'm in uh, Nelson in the Tasman region. Sure. I'm a hockey game of one of my players who's currently playing in Paris in France, for Stade Francais. Ah, nice. Uh, currently in New Zealand doing her education. Uh, she's moving through 
interesting period. So she's staying here with the mother while he's, uh, you know, propping up the Stade Francais Parisian scrum. <laughs> now, now, Johnny, um, just as an, as an introduction to our, our listeners about yourself, tell us, we're going to go, I'm going to ask you a few questions about your past um, shortly, but tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself right now. What, what, is, it, what is it that you do with yourself? Yeah, well, I think the, the simple word would be just try to be as useful as I possibly can. And, sure. uh, and I suppose every day is quite dynamic and interesting with the various projects that we've got going on. Um, the one that's really important and, and I'm the most passionate about is the foundation in Sierra Leone where I, sort of, where I was born and where I grew up before I came to New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to interconnect everything with, from the sports management to the rad coffee and have that connected back to the foundation somehow and, and give back as well as inspire and engage and and engage that community sure sure Um, so the red coffee you spoke of um, does that have ties back to Sierra Leone yes so uh, so the red coffee is a is the brainchild of uh, myself and my friend who I went who I know from Nelson Mm -hmm. so guy Hayden Thompson and so the 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 company's called Charles Thompson my name Mm -hmm. is John Gwenda Charles and his name is Hayden Thompson so taking a bit of each other Mm-hmm. And it's um, it's 100% ethically, socially responsibly sourced coffee beans from Africa. Mm-hmm. That's what that's what every single batch will be, um, and it's roasted here in uh, in Nelson, Tasman, and distributed for people. So the first so the first batch is uh, called Genesis EK73, mm-hmm. <laughs> which uh, means the first batch uh, 70% Ethiopian and a 30% Kenyan blend. Right. So at the moment, we've planted our first crop in Sierra Leone of beans, and we should be harvesting them in the next six to eight months. And we're hoping that they're going to be a strong blend of Arabica we could mix with our coffee blend. If not, we'll put a bit of Robusta in there as well. So it's pretty exciting. Cool. Now tell me, how, what leads you to um, coffee in the first place as a sports manager slash restaurateur? Of course, you are, you're the owner of Abracababra. Would that be right? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's really uh, something a bit diverse, and I think I like to, you know, I'd like to challenge myself. And I and I realise that the business mechanics around a very busy kebab shop um, would uh, would actually teach me quite a few things about business in general. And it has. It's been a phenomenal experience. Never worked in hospitality in my life. Mm. Um, still not the best at wrapping kebabs, but we have managed <laughs> to transfer <laughs> transfer the the culture of Abercrombie from a late night after 10 beers, sort of a place to a, you know, an all-day, a really good lunchtime location, a snack location, um, diversified the menu and make things a little bit fresher. And tell me, um, you told me a story once about one of your employees, uh, Johnny. Uh, yeah. I think he was working there when you took the place over and he now manages the place, is that right? Yeah, Osama Aladdin. So fascinating uh, um, person. So when I took over the place obviously it was absolute chaos um, in terms of no business operational systems but I also really really wanted to do it because I could see so much potential in the people within the organisation mm. so um, on the first day of the job we had 15 people resign obviously they didn't, they didn't really like the way in which I wanted to operate the business moving forward but mm. there was a, a young man uh, Osama who was washing dishes with his earplugs in and uh, he'd clear the tables, keep his earplugs in because all the other workers were bullying him and sort of defended him and saw something in him. And 
over the course of five years, we're in our sixth year now, he's uh, the absolute general manager. So he basically runs the entire shop, everything from uh, payroll to flexi time to to rosters to ordering to operations. So that's amazing. And, and and is he a good representation of the staff that you um, you choose to take on there at the shop? One hundred percent. So I think it's people that really want to extend themselves in a really in a conventional method. So basically, the kebab shop is such a mechanical um, business. Whereas you come in, you have to do the hours, and once mm. you've done the hours, and you go through the processes, then the outcome will will, will be derived. So it's a it's a bit of a different model to say a sports manager or. A, IT company or infotech company where it's all creative based mm-hmm. it's, it's very mechanical so I suppose if you're really into a mechanical processed uh, business organisation that's where you can really thrive Sure um, The sports management business Johnny, can you tell our listeners a little little bit about what you do there? Yeah, so with GCP, um, it's myself and uh, my business partner Kenzo Pinnell who came along to Kibosh with his wife, you remember the time? I do yeah, so, that's, so that stands for Gabinda Charles Pinnell, and uh, we played in Hong Kong together, so I played in Hong Kong for a while, and we both ended up playing for Hong Kong, and um, he's a fascinating person in himself, he's a bit of a, bit of a Mr. Miyagi, really chilled, laid-back sort of dude, uh, Hong Kong-born to a Japanese mother, Australian father, and educated at King's College in New Zealand, so he's a bit like me in terms of sort of got a really eclectic mix going on there um, and he's a qualified lawyer so we joined forces and realised that players around the world weren't really represented in the best possible manner and we felt there were a lot of players that fell through the cracks and the conventional systems What do you mean by fell through the the cracks Johnny? Just a lot, I think there's so many super talented individuals in this world um, specifically in New Zealand Mm -hmm. Um, and I think for some reason or not there just isn't the infrastructure in place to go through a process, a, a thorough player welfare process with these guys. Mm. So, so if you're looking at it from a conventional business model, that that would be what you call a red light athlete because you know if they haven't got it sorted out, they're never going to get it sorted out. Which is actually I disagree with that. So we we sort of started our business and we've carried on a little bit more with really targeting the you know the what they people thought were the naughty boys or you know. Mm. Or the red lights, and um, and and I think it's just making some general, you know, it's just some little general tweaks to that, and they've gone on to some really big and great things. Well, why did these particular clients interest you, John? What's that? Sorry. Why did these particular clients interest you? I just think well, I think I see a lot of myself, and Kenzo sort of sees a lot of himself in there, and the mm-hmm. fact that you know, just energy in the wrong way. Like I'm quite a you know, hyperactive and you know, high energy sort of person. Mm. And I think if it's put in the wrong channel, it can be quite destructive and negative. And if it's put in the right place, and, you know, I was fortunate enough as a kid, I grew up in Wellington, you know, after moving from Sierra Leone and went to St. Pat's College, and I loved it there. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I got a scholarship to Nelson Boys, and that was the best thing that's ever happened to me. So by coming to Nelson Boys, it held me accountable for my academic excellence, um, my you know, my sporting you know, environment and they, they, you know, they catered for all of that, but also helped me really, I suppose, yeah, I suppose accountable and, and, and part of the process rather than dictatorial and telling me what to do type thing. And that worked for me. Sure. So we felt that that could work for various other players. Mm-hmm. Um, could you tell us a little bit about some of the clients that you have there? 
Yeah, so you know we've got some some um, some pretty awesome name clients. So, so obviously Matt Proctor in Wellington, which people will be familiar with, and Biafasida, who's an absolute freak of a player as well. He's a, a, a Tongan that's playing for the Hurricanes and first year of Super last year, and you know maybe back into the tour as a replacement player. Mm. Um, but the ones that really sort of stand out for me is a guy Zach Talafa, which is ironic because I'm sitting here watching, standing here, sorry, watching his daughter play hockey. Mm. Um, <laughs> so he was. You know, he he we got a scholarship to Nelson College from Samoa. Um, you know, a bit of a troubled upbringing. Um, then ended up working at Tally's, uh, no Sea Lord, sorry, uh, Shelley Muscles, mm-hmm. and uh, not earning much money and dabbling in rugby. And you know, uh, just by chance, I met him. I thought, shit, there's a guy, someone with some real, something real spark. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did a bit of training together because a lot of it is that is getting them into good nick physically and yep. mentally. Um, and then managed to get him a, a, a short-term contract at Wasps in London. And since then, he's had eight years of professional rugby, and he's currently at Stade Francais, one of the premier clubs in Europe. So. And you clearly have a strong relationship with him if you're there watching his daughter play hockey. Oh, without a doubt. Like We have to be. The way I've made sure that to hold myself accountable and our organisation accountable, the closer we are to the athlete, the more... The more the, the more we have to really front up and what and deliver. Whereas, I suppose if, if a player represented a number on a sheet and we mm. flipped it from here to there, and maybe there's another player in the same position, we could make that compromise if there wasn't such a close emotional attachment. Sure. Yeah. So How many product, it's person versus product? Absolutely. How many clients do you take on at any one time, John? So we're pretty much near our uh, our, our peak now. So our our band. We've given ourselves as 50 players, and we've got 46 players globally. Mm-hmm. Obviously, as players go out, we can bring a new one in. However, I know we've, we've spoke briefly about this as well. As with what the recent, I suppose, I suppose the re- recent awareness of you know uh, post-player or post-career um, problems that, that these athletes are having around the world, whether it's rugby or NFL or rugby league, and I think we may need to have a look at our model and maybe even narrow it down even more to have the success that we want to have. To have. Sure. What is success yeah. for GCP? Success is, I think, to have a, a you know a, a person like Zach Talafa who no one ever expected anything from him and now has created the financial security for his, for his family in the future as well as providing his daughter um, to engage, enjoy and appreciate all the opportunities that any other you know, a human being should should get. Mm. You know, if you look at, if you think about a Samoan guy from Savai who was, you know, sent out or pretty much adopted or, you know, by, by another family, he, you wouldn't think his daughter would be playing hockey or doing boxing or playing mm. basketball, you know, at a mm. school and making rip teams and, you know. Yep. So that's a that's a clear objective of the organ of the company. Yeah, it's people before profit. You know, yeah. I think at the end of the day, let's not. You know, I'm not going to shy away from the fact that yes, we're in a business, and as part of any business, there needs to be a requirement for financial mm-hmm. uh, income. Mm-hmm. However, I know, and we've proven that by doing it right with with, with an with an athlete, you can get. Well, we found out you can get excessive, in, you know, two times as much as you would if you just kept on flicking them from contract to contract just to pick up commission. Sure. That's great, John. That's great. Um, let's let's uh, actually before we move on, I wanted to ask you a question. Um, last year, there was quite a bit of uh, media around um, 
a couple of instances. One was the Waikato, the Chiefs uh, incident with the stripper. Yeah. The other was the young Hurricane who assaulted the, um, what was it, a, just a, a young, a, a few young people. Yeah, Filippo. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. So I just wanted to get your take on those. And um, is this something that is wrong within the culture of the sport itself? Is it, is it um, too much too soon for these young young men and women? Like, what's your take as a as a manager of these um, these athletes? I think it's you know I, I I can't speak about the the, the individual cases obviously because I wasn't, I wasn't privy to the details and the content but I think in general when an organisation or an entertainment product which is what basically rugby has become now mm. gets large there's so many variables that can go wrong at any one time so the game is expanding there's more money being introduced players mm. wages are going up which is you know and so the, I suppose there's not no one singular. Um, solution to it. Mm. I think it's more about more about getting to know the individual athlete, and more about defending the culture of what that organisation or athlete represents. So the value system is really important. Mm. Um, yeah, and I think that it's, it's, it's happening in rugby league now, and these guys are getting a lot of money, and, and, and no one should begrudge them getting a lot of money. In fact, I think they don't get enough money. That's a different discussion, mm. but. Um, but also ensuring that people are held accountable to their value systems and the cultures in which those organisations represent. Sure. And do you think that that's a change which needs to happen at the organisational level? Um, I think all. Te- I think everyone ex- uh, is, uh, is responsible for that. The manager, the player, the coach, the CEO, mm. the, you know, uh, and uh, NDRFU or whichever national governing body. Sure is looking after that because let's be honest let's look at it individual sports athletes you know your 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 um the young the young pole vaulter that got a bronze the shot putter you just don't hear of those sort of things happening in other sports mm. you know, don't hear about that happening in triathlon or you know yeah. and people say it's an individual sport but it's actually not it's a value-based sport mm. interesting all right um yeah. johnny yeah. Thanks for thanks for sharing your views on um, where you're at right now. Shall we, let, let's go back and um, yeah. why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about um, how you got to where you are now? I mean, you've 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 achieved quite significant uh, milestones along the way. I mean, you were uh, you were you, you trialled for Crystal Palace professional football. I believe yeah. you were in their under nineteen and under twenty squad. Yep. And then, then you went on and you um, represented Hong Kong and uh, you on the international seven circuit for a couple of years. Yeah. Um, so you were always an athlete. You, well, let's go back. You, you were born in Sierra Leone. Yeah. So just you know, a typical Sierra Leone kid uh, born to a to a white Kiwi mother mm-hmm. <laughs> and an African dad. So my dad uh, won a road scholarship to to New Zealand to attend university, and that's where he met my mother and. Mm. Um, and their engagement or their relationship was not really accepted at all by my mother's parents, and so they had to elope to Australia, mm. where they had my eldest brother. So I'm, I'm the youngest of I'm the youngest of uh, four children, mm. and then uh, my mother ended up spending most of her life in Sierra Leone with my father, and, and until the conflict was looming, and we, we my mother, my sister, and I. Came mm-hmm. to New Zealand. My father and my two brothers stayed in Sierra Leone. So, and, and um, how long was it before you were able to return? Um, no, it wasn't. It wasn't until uh, before the 2009 
No, it was, oh, it was actually in, 19, in 1997 when I was over in the UK pursuing my professional soccer. I went to Africa, and that was relatively soon after the conflict. Mm-hmm. And that was just a bit too intense. Um, I don't think I was psychologically ready for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next time was when I was in, invited to join the, the, the national team in 2009 for the FIFA 2010 Soccer World Cup qualifiers with the Leone Stars. And that's where I you know, really started to engage with my culture, my community, which I sort of turned my back on as a New Zealander because I was a little bit embarrassed of because obviously Africa is, you know, mm-hmm. regarded as a poor, poverty-based, you know, sometimes dodgy-based, you know, society. So I want to get back in there and, and, and find my cultural roots, which are a huge part of who I am. Absolutely. How was that experience in 2009? That was intense. So, you know, so going there with the national team obviously is, it's just indescribable, you know. If you think All Blacks are big in New Zealand, you, you, soccer in, in Zealand is ridiculous. We have thirty thousand people watching us train. Um, there's no other sport there. It's just soccer, yeah. <laughs> and so um, and it's just yeah. We had security guards around us, and then so I realised then I could have quite a bit of an impact because we managed to go to my village and and uh, and contribute to the building of some schools. But then that money gets lost and yeah it's just it was a really important it was a really interesting phase where i felt that just by giving money to help it would really it would be able to help the culture and i could sort of I suppose cleanse my conscience a little bit mm-hmm. um and and then from through that failed failed experience i realized i actually had to get on the ground you know and get rubber to the road type thing and spend time in the country and since then i've been there twice i'm going to be going there again in the next month Mm. And I'm part of the whole building process of this new school and the buildings, and and that's really having greater impact rather than just chucking money at the problem. And hence why I want the, to get the coffee going up, going so they can farm it, and you know they can be independent. So what what is um, as far as Sierra Leone? I mean, uh, I understood that you said that it was um, Ethiopian and Kenyan the the coffee. So what, what what's actually happening in Sierra Leone? Regarding the coffee, yeah. So the coffee we've we've, made, we've uh, started a first batch of plantation. So oh, throughout the entire yeah, so throughout the entire Africa. So our the red represents all of Africa. So there'll be mm. could be Algerian mixed with you know Ugandan or Zimbabwean. But the ultimate goal is for the Sierra Leonean part to really make up a huge amount because if that if that mm. that can exist and we can really bring that forward, then rather than me sending money yeah, or sure. you know asking for sponsors, then it's a self-sustainable model. So the coffee plantation can provide the employment, which provides the income, which provides the programs, sporting programs for the kids to excel in, which allows them to get go to school, allows them to eat the right nutrition, allows them to get the right uh, you know school marks where we can bring them over to New Zealand for possible scholarships, and mm-hmm. they can express their athletic ability. You know, so that sort of everything's intertwined. So the the coffee is the seed, really, isn't it? What's that? The coffee is the seed. It's huge, but it's not just the coffee. It's, it's every every industry, and I think you know, without a doubt, if, you know, it, a lot of the a lot of the um, I suppose people predicting the future of our society, Africa will potentially be feeding the rest of the world because it's got the most organic and natural land. It's got so mm-hmm. much of it, right? <laughs> and it sits on the exact same equatorial plate as uh, South America. So if you look at the equator with Sierra Leone, it's got the same it's got the same weather as South America, where coffee is abundant. Hmm. Well, it's uh, and the coffee it's it's called rad. 
Yes, it's yeah, red um, stands for responsible and dangerous. So having a real play on the on the responsible word, which is a bit of a double entendre. We're responsible for change as well as we're trying to, we're trying to be responsible in terms of paying the farmers the right amount of money for their product, reducing the amount of middlemen. So we're basically trying to go from farm to roastery. Mm-hmm. Once you do that, you can pay the farmers more, which allows them to pay their workers more. And, and is it available yet? Yeah, so literally, I mean, we're, we're, I've just been to the roastery now, so we've had a couple of orders. So it's available at, um, obviously, it's been available at Abercrombie uh, for the last month or so because mm-hmm. we've been doing a bit of a test pilot there. Yep. And uh, how's that been going? Quite a, yeah, it's going really well. It's real punchy. So yeah, I'll tell it's you, like it's gone down well in the office. <laughs> Yeah, so I brought it down to you yeah. guys. You, so the kibosh has had a pre-taster. <laughs> I can vouch for it. <laughs> yeah. um, and then obviously uh, with this red coffee, the unique, I suppose, selling point is not just your beans and your plunger and all those conventional product lines. It's actually that the, we're and it's, it's, a, it's arriving tomorrow because I'm here at the bottlers, is cold brew so it's uh, mm, nice. in the bottle so it's a sparkling cold brew so mm. as of tomorrow after sparkling coffee first, yeah so we'll be the first company in New Zealand to produce sparkling cold brew well, there you go i never yeah. even heard of that before yeah no <laughs> well, <laughs> the, way, the way it came to fruition was do you like sparkling water and, and, and fizzy drinks yes do you like coffee yes we'll just marry those two together sure sure is there a precedent <laughs> for that is that something that's done uh, you know elsewhere around the no, oh, we just we just wanted to make sure it was the only one in New Zealand. I think there yeah, could sure. be some possibilities in the UK, yep. but our unique space one is definitely fresh New Zealand, lightly carbonated, so sparkling, sparkling coffee. Water. Yeah. <laughs> I look forward but, to trying that. natural. <laughs> cool. Okay, so... Um, so, if you... You, uh, you left Sierra Leone, came to New Zealand... Yeah. Uh, ...with your mother and your sister... Yeah. Um, and you ended up at um, St. Pat's? Yeah, so I grew up in Island Bay. I uh, went to St. Francis Primary School. Mm-hmm. And then I uh, went to St. Patrick's College, so followed in line with my mother's brothers. So they all went to either Silver Stream or St. Pat's College. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, played, played rugby, which is unique. Never played rugby in my life. So my mother said that was quite an entertaining thing to watch. <laughs> um, <laughs> because obviously, it's, you know, New Zealand's a very physical culture and, and Africa was just all soccer. Yeah. Um, and then at 16 years old, I made the switch over to play soccer. So the first time in my life to play organised soccer and just managed to, it just managed to go really well for me. And then by 17, you know, I've made the New Zealand secondary schools and, and was heading off on a scholarship overseas. Mm. And you found yourself at Crystal Palace. What's that, sorry? And you found yourself at Crystal Palace. Yes, I found myself having a crack there. Had an option of um, possibly going to the USA and following that college system, which is what players like Ryan Nelson did. Yeah. Um, but I, I chose uh, Bright Lights of London. Mm. How was that experience? Yeah, that was, it was amazing. It was phenomenal. Um, without a doubt, I was out of my depth in terms of the technical and and tactical understanding of the game um, mm. because I was pretty much just an athlete had good, you know, really good fitness and reasonable speed and, and whatnot. So that carried me along quite far. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was, you know, if I was to be absolutely honest with myself, would I have been a premiership player down the line? Probably not. I could have been a good, you know, championship or a national one player. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had a bit of an accident there that um, I was involved in a car accident where I was hit by a car while riding my bike. So if any of you know what the English roads are like they're absolutely terrible so small 
Um, and, and so that, that put the put the end to the football career? Well, yeah, just, just basically it didn't allow me, I can get back enough and I was pretty much on trial and you know, just it was just on that cusp, I wasn't an established player. So I got released and, um, and then had a bit of time to sort of think about what I was going to be doing and reflect in my life after sport, which is obviously my own personal experiences helping me now within as a as an athlete manager, mm-hmm. um, so I got stuck into education. So to become a personal trainer, sure, which is a bit of a cliche, but you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I did that and uh, did a course at Loughborough University. So it wasn't a degree; it was just a, um, a diploma in strength and conditioning, and uh, and then just got stuck into that into the training side, which I really loved and enjoyed in London. And that that led on to Hong Kong. Yeah, no, no, that led on to meeting, which is a bit crazy, which is meeting, uh, my. Uh, uh, I met a woman over there who ended up being my daughter's mother, uh, mm-hmm. she's a New Zealander, so I met her in London, so I travelled all the way to the other side of the world to meet a New Zealander, um, and then she got pregnant, I was only 21 years old and had my daughter at 21, mm-hmm. so we came back to New Zealand and you know, and uh, we're, going, we're going to do the whole New Zealand settle down thing, and um and that sort of, yeah, that was a huge change. Um, and my daughter and her mother, we split, and uh, I got the opportunity to go to Hong Kong and play professional rugby. Wow. How was, um, so it was okay to play rugby, but not the football? No, just, yeah, for some reason, I think it was more psychological for me. Um, mm. The two years out of the game, I managed to get myself right as a personal trainer, obviously training every day. And, yeah, sure. You know, that was one of the main reasons why I wanted to do the course, was to understand a bit more about my body and my injuries. Mm. Um, and then I just got, got, you know, got myself in great nick. I did, in 2001, dabble with a trial back in the UK with Fulham, mm-hmm. um, but I was way off the mark uh, and just sort of a little bit disheartening. I don't think, you know, Staying in New Zealand and possibly playing National League or Central League is not really going to cut it. Yep. So not after trialling for Crystal Palace. What's that? Not after trialling for Crystal Palace. No, I just you know I think it's one of, you know one of those things where the you know where if I had the right guidance and management I would have been able to focus in and, and, and achieve something there. Mm-hmm. I don't know who knows, but I really wanted to have a fresh, clean start. A lot of my mates were playing rugby, so I was playing a lot of rugby and then just. You know, by chance, this opportunity came to go to Hong Kong. I grabbed it with both hands. Yeah, no doubt. How was the International Seven Circuit? Oh, that was amazing. So, you know, yeah, so the, first of all, it's, you have to stay in the country for three years to qualify to play. So, you know, you know, I spent, in the end, I spent six years in Hong Kong. But when I first went over to play professionally, obviously I couldn't play for Hong Kong. Um, but my training background from London um, was with a player, John Schuster, who was a former All Black. Mm. So I trained him when I was in London while he was doing his final years at Harlequins in London. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he'd retired and then gone back to Samoa and been named a Samoa National Sevens coach. So he got me on board to do, this, to, to do the Sevens team. So in the off-season, which was six months of the Hong Kong season, would be the Sevens circuit. So do the Sevens circuit, then play rugby in the off-season in Hong Kong, then do the Sevens circuit, and did that until I qualified to play. Wow. <laughs> and how was that Seventh Circuit? Is it, a, is it a crazy time? It's awesome. It's amazing. Like for any young, you know, I think, you know, once again, I think New Zealand Rugby Union have really missed the ball there. It's such an amazing platform for young guys to mature, to increase their interpersonal intelligence, to learn about other cultures, to learn about travel, about independence. Mm. Um, and there are a lot of guys that are actually in the New Zealand team now, which they've done very well, but potentially we could have you know, some higher standard players in there, you know? Yeah, sure. 
New Zealand seems to have um, dropped off a little bit on the sevens front in the last few years. That's just purely, yeah, that's just purely the pool of players. Their last selection is a lot more narrower now. Mm. Great. Um, well, that's a um, pretty full and varied life you've got going on there, uh, Johnny. What, what, what does the future hold? Um, um, so going back to, I suppose, going back to the origin or the genesis of the discussion about why I'm doing, I think it's just, I'm at a stage now where I've been through this Hong Kong thing where it exposed me, obviously, to a good level of, 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 of sport, you know. Mm-hmm. Would I have made a New Zealand team? team? Nowhere in the world. Would I have made a Samoan national team? Nowhere in the world. But I managed to use an opportunity Absolutely. in Hong Kong to mm-hmm. expose myself to the circuit and also expose myself to some pretty switched-on business people who helped me to develop the skills that I now possess. Mm. So, And also allowed me to to experience firsthand that the pursuit of money, wealth and riches in a conventional method is actually not really my plan and doesn't really motivate me at all. Sure. So I suppose it's really trying to be as useful as you can because I think that's the most impact you can have in the world is to, you know, just try and help here and there where you can and if everyone's doing that, you know, more more hands make light work. Absolutely. Um, so... As far as uh, the business, uh, the GCP, Rad, yeah. and Abracababra, um, yeah. they're all pulling in the same direction. It's all um, it's all quite socially based. Um, yeah. all, all really taking on your value systems, haven't they? Yeah, it, it just has to. I think at the end of the day, when you set up a business, and you know, there's, there's, also, there's lots of academic definitions of it. You know, they call it entrepreneurship, which is you know, working within an organisation, but you're exploring your entrepreneurial flair. There's conventional entrepreneurship, and then there's uh, socialpreneurship, which is you know, people that are really focused on, on on social needs. I think at the end of the day, every single person, whether you're in it to make money or you're in it to help your family, there has to be a sense of returning it back you know there's got to be a feedback loop within mm. your local community where you derive your raw products from uh, where you sell your products yep. and to whom you sell your products I think that's where that I think if you, if you follow those guidelines with whatever you do mm. I think you won't go wrong yeah I totally agree Johnny I think that's going to be the next um, if there is a big change coming I think it's going to be as simple as that for people as to being a bit more conscious about how they're spending their money and how they're earning their money and who they earn their money True. from and yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's fantastic to um, just to, to meet somebody that's that's walking that walk, you know. Yeah, and it, and it, it, it takes it takes a lot of bravery. You now initially, everyone thought I was absolutely crazy to head down this line. They're like, why don't you stop filing money? And you know, but you know, I had a you know, I'm 38 years old, turning 39. At about 30, you know, 30 years old, I had a bit of an epiphany, a bit of a an awakening where I was like, well, do I? I've got the choice now. Do I keep my head down and earn? Gazillions of dollars, mm. or do I just focus on, you know, spending time with my daughter, re-engaging in a more meaningful way with my daughter, mm-hmm. with the people around you, with my family, with my roots and my culture? Um, because at the end of the day, that's what I'm going to be taking away with me. Not money, you know. Money's only thousands of years old, right? Mm. Human beings are older than that. Yeah. That's fantastic, Johnny, and that's exactly why I asked you to come on this show because of the values which you hold and um, that you exhibit and everything that you do and with your businesses and in the way that you conduct yourself. So I just want to um, say a huge thank you for taking uh, half an hour out of your obviously busy, busy life, my friend, and, and coming on and sharing your story with us. Um, 
you were gonna, you, you've chosen a song uh, to take us out with here, Johnny. What have you chosen there? Yeah, well, Tommy Oliver is a mate of mine in Wellington, phenomenally talented young artist. Um, and Shine Like the Sun is his new, is his new single out. Get out there on Spotify. I don't really know how you you purchase things anymore. Um, but I think you, you don't go to the CD store anymore. So you know, download it, watch it on YouTube. It's beautiful, and he's super talented, and he's on a really good path as well. So. Sweet. We're going to play that right now. Thanks again, Johnny. I look forward to seeing you down at the Eric Kaiwash um, very no soon. No worries. Thank you for your time. Thank you. See you, buddy. Bye. Take my body, take my mind Take any part of me left that you can find yeah. Cause until I can have your eyes Empty inside And you look beautiful as ever I'm gonna take you away to where the earth and the sea is we're gonna fall off the edge just like falling in love again And when we're finally floating in the darkness, that's when We're gonna shine like the sun and never end Take my money, take my time Girl, you can have anything that I would call mine Cause I'm hoping I can have you Or at least a little part of you, baby Cause I can't stop thinking about you mm. I'm gonna take you away to where the earth and the sea is We're gonna fall off the just like falling in love again And when we're finally floating in the darkness That's when We're gonna shine like the sun And never end Like falling in love again And when 
Shine like the sun, never end. 